Hello and welcome to the Decentralized Justice Broadcast. My name is Federico Ast. I am CEO at Cleros. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, here is my co-host today, Damian Malvasic. How are you, Damian? It's good. It's good. It's a great day and it's uh, lovely to, to be here with you and uh, the esteemed Professor A. Winter. And yes, and our guest today is Eyal Winter, who is Professor of Economics and Director of the Center for the Study of Rationality at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, uh, one of the leading institutions in the academic study of decision-making. He served as Chairman of Economics Department at the Hebrew University and was the 2011 recipient of the Humboldt Prize, awarded by the Government of the Federal Republic of Germany. Eyal has lectured at over 130 universities in 26 countries around the world. Um, you may know some of these universities, some Harvard University, Stanford, Princeton, California, Berkeley, and Cambridge. So Eyal, welcome. Um, we're very happy that you're with us today. Thank you, Federico. It's great to hear you back. Good. Um, well, tell us a bit first, Eyal, about your formative years. How did you become an, an economist and, and how did you decide to specialize in game theory? Well, I, I started actually my career, my academic career as a mathematician. I, uh, I, uh, I did math and, and statistics for my undergraduate and also uh, much of it for my PhD. And during my PhD, I started getting interested in game theory. And I guess what attracted me uh, in game theory is, is the, the idea that um, you can actually model social situations. I thought, you know, I thought that the social situation belongs to social sciences and you can um, uh, bring insightful ideas about it, talk about it, um, uh, uh, write poems about it, but, but not really do math. When I start, when I started looking at papers in uh, in game theory, I realized that you can actually do a lot in understanding social situation by means of formalizing them in 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 uh, in a mathematical way, and that attracted me a lot and determined my my uh, the rest of my career actually as academics. Uh -huh. Intriguing. I had a question. I was reading recently uh, a Guardian article that you wrote several years ago speaking about voting in elections and, yes. as well as ideology, which is basically an irrational process. Um, just for, for uh, our audience that is not acquainted with the topic, could you give us a little bit of an outline of what game theory is, how it functions, and how, how it actually relates to, 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 let's say, the social sphere, how it all functions? Okay, so, so um, game theory is considered to be the theory of interactive in, in uh, situations. Um, uh, there, is a lot, there are a lot of models in, in math and in operation research that deal with the issue of optimization. You have an individual, this individual have objective. How would this individual maximize his objective given certain uncertainties. But this involves a unified player, okay, a single individual. Most dilemmas we face in life involve interactions with other people. And this is exactly the field that game theory is, uh, uh, is dealing with. 
in a situation where we have more than a single individual, where people interact, when I take an action, I have to have beliefs about what other people would do, what you will do, what are your objectives. Mm. And you might also have beliefs about what, what are my objectives and what I might do given my objectives and how these two things go together. And, and the most important concept in game theory, which is Nash equilibrium, is formalizing that. It, it uh, brings in a concept that says there is a way to resolve social interaction by means of finding an equilibrium, a situation in which everybody does its best in a way that no person has an in incentive to change what he does. And much of the uh, applications of game theory in social sciences mm -hmm. is using this, uh, this concept. For instance, you mentioned voting. Voting and, and the analysis of voting relies very, very heavily on the theory of games. And uh, because voting is a game, when you, when you vote, uh, when you go for election, for instance, or when, or when you vote on, in a committee, you have a certain objectives, you have preferences over the different possibilities that can arise through this voting, right? Mm -hmm. uh. And when you vote, you have to take into account also what other people might do. And sometimes, for instance, you decide not to vote for your best alternative because given what you believe other people might do, okay, and you want to avoid the very negative alternative to turn out as winners, as a winner, you may vote for your second alternative. So this is a um, this is a pure strategic example of voting, um, uh, which is a classical social uh, decision. Mm. What are some examples uh, besides voting where people have tried to apply game theory? Well, game theory has applied in all, I would say, in, in basically every, every situation in life that you can encounter has, uh, the, 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 that you can raise has by now a game theoretic model, starting with uh, uh, interaction inside the family, interaction between, um, um, between spouses, between uh, uh, individuals and, and their spouses, uh, interaction uh, in the working place, um, politics. Politics has a lot of modeling in game theory. Of course, economics was the first field in which game theory has, has been heavily applied. Uh, But these days, there are also models uh, that um, I'm, I'm, I've been used. I've been advising recently. Huawei, uh, don't tell it. Uh, don't tell it to um, uh, Donald Trump. Okay, it's just between <laughs> us. Um, but um, but I I've been advising Huawei um, on on how to use sensors um, to verify. Um, to verify who is the user that currently um, is using the the device uh, that need protected, um, and they, and and the way sensors and the way they accumulate or, or, or aggregate information by sensors is using game theoretical model. 
Okay? Game theory has also recently been applied to study um, the behavior of cancerous cells in the body. Okay? Turns out that you can formulate a competition between uh, a, a cancerous cell and a, and a benign cell and a regular cell um, as, as a game between cells. And in, in this game, um, uh, you want, obviously, the benign cell, the, the, the regular cell, to, to win. And, and if you have the right model of how these cancerous cells and benign cells interact, you might be able to come with a remedy that might uh, might be able to heal cancer. But Eyal, but this is true. Cancer cells that they behave rationally, like like humans. No, human no, no. But but um, but the reasoning of game theory is not only based on rationality. One other tool that very much, uh, very strongly is incorporated in, into game theory is evolutionary theory. Okay, so mm -hmm. there are lots of models in biology that describe how mammals behave, how, uh, let's say, deers conduct their fights, how birds communicate, and so forth. You won't attribute so much rationality to birds and insects, insect bees. Bee, the, the, the life of bees is, has, uh, ha, has uh, attracted a lot of game theory to use models to describe. Uh, you won't really... Uh, Uh, you won't really um, attribute too much rationality to bees, right? Nevertheless, what you do uh, attribute is um, is the fact that bees um, uh, bees multiply according to some evolutionary model. Okay, so mm -hmm. what re what replaces rationality when you talk about bees or cells? or even viruses, instead of uh, the, the, the payoffs that we have in a model in which individuals play, what we have when we talk about viruses, cells, or bees, we have the propensity to multiply. Hmm. That's the payoff that replaces uh, money, okay? And uh, if you use um, uh, survival and fitness as criteria by which um, a, a criteria according to, to which bees, cells, and viruses make decisions, okay, uh -huh. then uh, game theory can be very helpful. And much of the game theory models that have been used in biology and evolutionary theory has been confirmed uh, through um, empirical data. Hmm. Um, that's, this is fascinating. I, I, I remember having read the, the I think, Mandeville fable uh, on bees um, mm -hmm. that, that was, uh, I, I think, it's 17th century, maybe. Um, and how, how do like, new technologies affect the field I'll, of game Maybe theory? I'll give you an example, a, a, real, yeah. a, a, real, a real example about bees. Okay. Um, Think, think of think of the following game. You have um, you have um, it's called the two arm bandit. It's a very well known uh, uh, statistical decision problem. You have two boxes. Okay, uh, one of them has um, 
a prize, let's say $100, with probability uh, two quarters, sorry, with probability two thirds, and the other one has this prize with only probability third, okay? You don't know which is the more advantageous box, okay? So you start sample, okay? You run an experiment. You take one and see whether it has the prize, and then the second and see whether it, takes the, it has the prize. And if at each period, this prize occurs with the same probability, independently of what happened before, okay? Um, what would be the optimal strategy to use here? Well, if you knew what the probabilities are, which, which is the better box, you would only open the better box, right? If the mm -hmm. one gives you a prize with probability two-third and the other one gives you the prize with probability one-third, you should only use the one which has a probability two-third, right? Mm -hmm. But if you don't know the prize, you, if you don't know the probabilities, you have to sample and assert, and, and uh, at a certain stage, the optimal sampling frequencies has to match the, the, the probabilities, right? So if the, the one that occurs hmm, uh, to be more likely through the experiments at some stage have to be sampled with, 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 the, with the same with the same quota of the probability. Namely, you have to, tw to sample the more advantageous one twice as much as the other one, because one is two-thirds and one is one-third. Mm -hmm. It's not easy to prove that this is the optimal strategy, okay? But it turns out that bees do it perfectly <laughs> and recognize it faster than in humans, right? How do we know that they recognize it faster than humans? In one, one of the labs that we have at the Center for the Study of Rationality is a, a lab with artificial flowers. What are artificial flowers? These are uh, boxes that have colors where you can put nectar inside and you can put this nectar in a certain probability. Hmm. Okay? And then you let, uh, you let bees run across these boxes, which are exactly like flowers, only that they are not real flowers, right? Mm -hmm. And you can, you, you can control the probabilities by which nectar appears in these different flowers with different colors, and you can then monitor how often these flowers are being visited by actual bees, <laughs> and what you see is that they are doing exactly what they're supposed to do according to this very complicated mathematical model. And the reason they are doing it is that evolution designed them to be optimal. Mm. Otherwise, they wouldn't have survived. Um, does this apply to humans also? Are we also crafted to, to optimize, like, because we have survived, extent, right? To a certain extent. Uh, the thing is that, that our decision-making is much more complicated than that of, of um, bees because our social environment, okay? And, um, and to a certain extent, uh, one interest may conflict the other. And so there are situations in which we supposedly behave irrationally, but if we look, if we look 
deeper into these examples, we realize um, we realize that nevertheless uh, we do think we do things op optimally, right? Um, let me give you an example, which I uh, which is uh, uh, related to a paper that I published uh, not long ago. Um, people have very often overconfidence, okay? And overconfidence is is assumed to be um, a serious bias. Overconfidence and wishful thinking, okay? Mm -hmm. it, it's it's um, very often it's a trap, right? Mm -hmm. In a, in in a situation like the coronavirus in an environment of epidemic, it's a serious trap because. Um, Wishful thinking could lead you to think that you, ah, I don't need a mask. I can, you, you know, I can do without it. It will never happen to me. It happens to everybody else, but I will not going to contract the virus. Okay. That's wishful thinking. Okay. Um, and you may ask, why, why are we endowed uh, with overconfidence and wishful thinking? Um, uh, if it, if it works against us, why, why did evolution, uh, Never, why evolution never managed to get rid of this trait. Hmm. And it turns out that there are experiments, both experiments, and there are also a game theoretic model that show that on the, uh, in addition to the, to the downside of having wishful thinking and overconfidence, there is a big upside. The big upside is that by having overconfidence, first of all, you incentivize yourself better. And you are capable of engaging with uh, objectives that you wouldn't otherwise engage with. If you were pessimistic, you would, uh, you know, if you were a hunter during uh, gather hunter time, and you were not overconfident, you probably wouldn't wake up to uh, go hunting in the morning. Uh, you st you would stay in bed and you wouldn't survive. And and in uh, today's competitive environment, if you are not overconfident this would this could or if you are underconfidence or or have uh, instead of uh, wishful thinking have negative beliefs about prospects you would you would be disincentivized to compete you would be um, you would be disincentivized to engage in the market and and moreover if you compete if you were forced to compete you will transmit to your competitor uh, a certain level of weakness that can work against you. I can relate to this. Like being a founder <laughs> of a startup, I can like totally relate about definitely, this. Definitely. <laughs> so, uh, um, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, go ahead, Damien. You, you asked the next yeah, question. I, I was thinking about, I just wanted to connect, you know, as you, Fede, mentioned, you know, startups. And I sort of wanted to uh, steer the, the conversation in the direction about, you know, technologies and their impact in, in, yes. in, in game theory. Uh, how is game theory relevant in an age when a larger and larger number of decisions are done by artificial intelligence and, la and algorithms? Right. So, so it, it, it just means that um, the field, um, the field of game theory, and, and indeed this is the case, have been um, transformed to a large extent um, 
to uh, into computer science and and some of my work some of my collaborators are people from computer science who are called algorithmic game theorists and and the idea in algorithmic game theories game theory is is to think about interaction between computers um, and systems right mm-hmm. and um, and some of these already take place. For instance, if you think about the way um, Google is managing its, its um, uh, sponsored uh, auction, right, space for advertising, ad, ad auction, um, it's all about game theory. It's all game theories that design these, uh, these auctions and design the the strategies that companies are using to compete, right? So basically what happens instead of, instead of participating in an auction where you, um, where you submit a bid, uh, um, there, there are um, computer program, hundreds or thousands of computer program that compete with one, an- with one another uh, on basically queries that people put in Google. Okay, and each query is that, in a, on average, generate about ten cent for the company. When each query is displayed, uh, an auction starts, um, where bids are being transmitted in millisecond among hundreds or thousands of company. On and and the bids are on the amount that the company is willing to pay on a single click, right? And eventually, what Google does is compute the potential revenue from each bid because there could there could be different number of clicks generated by different companies, and then it ranks the ads according to the expected revenue that uh, these ads might uh, uh, provide to the company, given the bids that these companies um, have been uh, submitted. Okay, so this is one example. Um, The other example is the area that you are uh, working on that now uh, interests me, interests other people like Paul Goldberg that uh, we've been... uh, uh, discussing, uh, which is uh, finding um, procedures for aggregating information uh, by systems um, that um, yield uh, something like um, effective or accurate uh, crowd wisdom by getting all these informations together, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, what, what, one very important aspect, when we talked about, about con- computers, we have to bear in mind that still, and I think this is going to be the case for the next thousand years, as far as I'm concerned, if I, as far as I see it, still, behind those computers, there are human beings, Maybe in a thousand years, there wouldn't be any more human beings behind these computers, but still we have human beings behind these computers, and these human beings have objectives, 
And these human beings have incentives, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that has changed is only the set of strategies by which these individuals are manifesting or pursuing their objectives, okay? Mm -hmm. But the objectives themselves are objectives or individuals or groups or companies or organizations and so forth, right? So what the only thing that has been changed is the, um, the, the structure of the game, okay? But eventually, mm -hmm. the game itself remains alive because, because these people, as I said, have incentive. These incentives yield payoffs. So we have to talk about payoff because you have payoff. You have to talk about maximization. Okay. Because you have maximization concept, you, you can talk about the best thing to do and the worst thing to do and the okay thing to do. So all these concepts remain the same. Okay. Of course, because we now talk about a much more complex set of strategies available to these bodies, uh, the design, the design of of games or the analysis of game becomes very different. So one one for instance one one concept that one issue that has been changed by means of algorithm game theory is that we don't necessarily are able to find the optimal strategy. Okay. Um, because the game might be too complex, okay? Mm. So, so we ask questions about the complexity of the game itself, the complexity of finding the optimal strategy, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, if we have a very small game, we can actually compute the optimal strategy. But if the game has um, thousands and thousands of, um, of uh, players and therefore may have thousands of thousands of strategies, then the optimal strategy is not computable anymore. Okay? It requires exponential time for computation, and this is unachievable. Mm -hmm. This is called an NP-complete problem. And, and what we do is ask, okay, if we, can't, um, if we can't find the optimal thing to do, can we at least approach it, approximate it to a certain degree? And this is very often the nature of game theoretic result in the sphere of uh, of computer science. That's that's fascinating. Um, yeah, and how does this apply to legal systems? Legal systems are using game theory as well. Uh, there, there has been a, a very uh, influential book uh, published by Kutter about a decade ago called Game Theory and the Law. Okay? Mm -hmm. and, and this book is talking about all the legal aspects um, and the way game theory can shed light on. But the basic idea is that um, legislation, a bill, a law, is a game because it sets rules. And when people have rules, they play by the rules and try to do their best according to the rules, right? 
Mm-hmm. And this gives rise to, um, uh, to a game. And now the questions arise, you know, for instance, if you want to deter um, optimally, say, against fraud, right? And you want to, um, to design a mechanism, which is a bill, that will make sure that, um, that um, uh, the law will be uh, uh, the law will be sustained at the minimal threat of punishment. Okay, how should you go about doing it? Okay, so a very a very relevant question is: um, suppose you have um, two options. Um, Raising the punishment, okay, with uh, potential consequences of getting more people into um, into jails, with the cost of getting them off the labor market and into the jail, which by itself is costly, okay. Or mm-hmm. alternatively, you you can avoid uh, increasing the punishment, but you can increase the uh, propensity of catching these violators, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because um, crime is being uh, being punished only in a certain probability because many crimes uh, um, are performed without any punishment due to the fact that the criminal is not being caught because of uh, also... um, uh, resource limit on how much the police uh, uh, can achieve in terms of um, of uh, catching the criminals. Okay, so the question is, what would be the optimal design of a legal scheme that takes into account both the deterrence from the punishment itself and the deterrence from the probability of being caught? Okay. Um, And then there are uh, issues also about um, jury decisions, right? And how to how to design um, an optimal jury um, rule, right? Taking into account that these two aspects, that if you make the jury rule requires anonymity, as the case is uh, today. Um, in both the U.S. and and, and the U.K., um, then you may defer decision, which is by itself costly as well, okay? And you may have manipulation by jury members vis-a-vis other just to make the vote unanimous, okay? Okay, so this is the, the downside of making... Um, requiring unanimous vote by juries. Uh, the, the upside by requiring unanimous vote is that you force individuals to, to uh, really stand on what they believe in and trying to convince others. Okay? Mm-hmm. And, and the question is, the question that people raise, maybe, maybe unanim- unanimity is not the optimal thing, as opposed to simple majority, maybe qualified majority. Maybe we should ask two-third majority instead of unanimity. Maybe we should ask uh, 
uh, nine tenths majority and leave a certain leave a, a, a certain opportunity for a small minority to object the majority decision. So these are these are all questions that can be addressed by means of uh, game theoretic modeling. Mm. Yeah. yeah, these are the questions that we uh, address all the time at Claros about how to improve the incentive system. I for, so. Yeah, that's that's the core of our, our research. Um, and what, what do you think, like, um, and we discussed this before, um, are the main challenges of the use of game theory and, and, this, so, uh, and this decentralized justice field to, to be more widespread in the, um, in, in the world, basically, right? What, what, are, what do you yeah. think are the obstacles? I think, I think the, 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 the challenges um, are multiple. Uh, one very important aspect um, is um, there, there are, I think there are two major aspects that need to, to be addressed. The first one is that unlike much of um, um, other type of voting, okay, where where you can ex post assess the the vericity of uh, the choices of individuals, whether they voted correctly or not. Especially this this is, for instance, I'm referring to all sorts of votes that are taking in 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 a board in boards of of companies uh, or in investment banks and so forth. Uh, where there is um, uh, a certain uncertainty that has to be resolved, and um, and uh, uh, these un these uncertainty at the time of voting uh, uh, applies, but at a certain stage, this uncertainty resolves, and you can actually verify uh, who decided cor who voted correctly and who voted incorrectly. In 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 your field. Um, Uh, it will never be revealed, okay? And it's also the case with the standard juries in courts, in real courts. It will never be revealed whom among the juries were correct or not, okay? We may have some signals about it, but there are not going to be any more trials, okay? The trials is going to be determined with the decisions of the jury, and the case is gone. There's no nobody is interested even of trying to verify um, what was the truth. Okay, uh -huh. um, there you know they take famous cases like O.J. Simpson. Okay, uh, the jurors decided unani unanimously in favor of O.J. Simpson, and um, we all thought it's crazy. Okay, we all thought it crazy, but it was a unanimous vote. Okay. Um, it has been when two, 20 years ago, maybe, maybe more. Yeah, something uh, more. we still don't know. Hmm? <laughs> yeah, more than 20 years ago, 25 more than 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, we still don't know whether they were right or not. Okay, we still have the same suspicious suspicion that they were wrong, but there wasn't any any um, clear evidence in either in either way. Hmm? This is this is the, the the crucial matter. 
uh, of the kind of thing you're dealing with. And, and because this is a crucial matter, it's incredibly important to find uh, mechanisms, rules, and schemes, okay, that A, will incentivize people to vote sincerely and with a substantial amount of investment of effort towards learning the case. Okay, that's one thing. And on the other hand, that the, that the scheme will be able to replace them dynamically when we get signals that this is not the case, namely mm. that they don't vote sincerely or they don't invest sufficient effort in um, trying to verify what's the true, what the true decision should be. Okay? Mm. So this is one aspect. The other, the other issue um, is, is the aspect of trust. The aspect of trust by the public, one of the most important things uh, in a legal system, and um, I have a good friend with Supreme Court judge in Israel, and I'm talking a lot about him. Very often decisions are made by, by the Supreme Court um, that are not 100%, not 100%, maybe 99%, I wouldn't say 80%, but only 99% correct in terms of the legal, pure legal aspect, right? Mm. But very often these decisions will be made in order to generate the necessary trust of the public in the system. Okay? Yeah. And, and this aspect of trust is 10 times more important for you than, than normal courts. <laughs> because... <laughs> Normal courts already have the infrastructure, already gain a certain degree of trust, whereas you have none yet. Okay? Mm -hmm. So it's very important to generate mechanism that will reveal um, to both the, the people involved, but also to the public that is observing these decisions, and eventually, if you succeed, this decision will become public. That will um, that will convince the public uh, who are who is observing this decision that you are doing a good job. That you can that that uh, that justice is being served. But what you are doing, hmm. and this, yeah, this is not easy. And and math. And uh, of course, behavioral economics and understanding how people how people perceive trust is a, is a crucial aspect in in getting this trust. Mm. How the, people yes, perceive justice. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the things that I think is is an advantage with regards to 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 open source blockchain systems is that all information is already uh, transparent. It's already all online and accessible to, to, yes. to everybody to check. So I think that it sort of uh, is, is a good underlying platform mm -hmm. for, for, for uh, creating a system as you described. Um, on that line, I had a question. In, in 2014, you published the book that 
pretty much we've all read, which is feeling smart, why our emotions are more rational mm-hmm. than we think. Um, I, I wanted to ask you if you can tell us a little bit about the book and if you could reflect perhaps on how uh, uh, what you wrote in the book and what you're working on um, reflects on the, 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 the story that we've just talked about, about building novel justice systems in, in the decentralized space. <laughs> so the book is, um, was originated uh, by uh, several years in which I um, served as the director of the Center for the Study of Rationality at the Hebrew University. Well, I'm, I'm going to take this opportunity to uh, correct you, Federico. I'm not anymore the director. I uh, finished a couple of years ago and there's somebody else who replaces me. This is a term for not more than five years. And uh, I, I had a lot of opportunities to speak with people working on rationality from different fields. And, and quite stunningly, I realized uh, also through some of my works, uh, some of the works that I did, that for people to understand uh, rationality, it's essential to understand emotions. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and my, my basic claim uh, in this book is that many of the emotional reactions that we display, okay, huh. and um, about which we think uh, very negatively, okay, we think very negatively about um, anger, for instance, uh, we think very negatively about embarrassment or other weaknesses, emotional weaknesses, many of these emotions are actually rational. They're rational in the sense that they um, facilitate our social decision-making in, in, quite, in a quite um, uh, effective and optimal way, mm. okay? And the book is dealing with uh, just um, demonstrating how various emotional phenomena um, are being translated to, um, to benefits to individuals. For instance, I... I'm using uh, anger, again, to show, uh, to demonstrate through some um, experiment that have been conducted by uh, myself and other people um, that anger actually allows you uh, a certain degree of commitment, okay, and demonstrating to those people against you feel anger Mm. that certain (laughs) things are important to you, uh, and very often they would not cave in because uh, un- unless you you display a certain degree of anger. So think about a super rational person negotiate uh, uh, a certain deal uh, in a very aggressive environment. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, if the person is saying, if the person is being uh, abused because his bargaining pay- uh, power is low, okay, um, but then he comes and says, listen, I know that you have better opportunities than me, but if you want to insult me with such a, um, such a humiliating offer, I'm simply angry about it and I'm not going to accept it, mm-hmm. okay? Um, he would probably do much better than a person who will display himself as being, who will pretend himself to be super rational, 
that mm. only concerns about material outcomes. Okay? Mm. If it's indeed the case that um, that the other person, that he would be satisfied with uh, 10 bucks for the deal, then, uh, and, and uh, because he's rational, he preferred 10 bucks to nothing, then he will be he will be exploited much easily than somebody who who says yes i'm willing to give up 10 bucks just not to mm. feel screwed up okay mm. so yes. so uh, i'm 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 listing a lot of um, uh, behavioral funding findings and and theoretical models that uh, i worked on and other people worked on uh, that show the uh, advantage in um, in uh, certain, uh, of course, under certain circumstances, in emotional reactions. Okay, uh-huh. and um, and I think uh, and I think um, um, uh, uh, you know when we started talking about your your platform, I I one of the things I asked myself is whether it would be um, a good idea to, um, rather than just asking these um, juries, jurors, to vote based on the data, whether it would be a better idea to let them interact in some way, in one way or another. Mm. Liberate. To send signals to one another. Like juries actually do in courts. Hmm? Hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, Yal, so in the platform, uh, jurors can potentially interact. So if you, if a juror wants to reveal his identity, uh, and uh, to the others, they can interact and we have a, so they have group. an option. They have an option to do it. Very good. Yeah, yeah, they have an option, but the the thing is that still the each one will vote individually. So even if, um, they interact, yes. so they Absolutely. still have to, Strategize yeah. on, the, on the vote, yeah. but yeah, but but, yeah. but this interaction is is so important for two reasons. First of all, because you you need this emotional aspect to um, to to a certain extent influence other people, and and but but beyond that, but beyond that, there is so so much information. That is incorporated in the in in the emotional reaction when people uh-huh. interact, whether they are talking to one another or sending email messages or whatever. Every every piece of interaction reveals a certain degree of uh, em- emotional arousal, and you can you you will be able eventually to utilize this information mm. Mm. to down to the down to the point that you will be able to more accurately um, uh, assess the motives behind their decision so for instance if somebody is 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 voting um, is voting because not because the relevant information that he was giving but because of some sort of um, initial prejudice uh-huh. or, uh, or, or because of a certain ideology, okay? Uh, you will be able, uh, through these uh, signals, to detect it better, 
and potentially, uh, in cases like that, give a lower weight for such jurors. Mm. Okay, so this is a valuable information that you might want if people are willing to give it. Okay, you, you cannot force them to. I guess there's a certain rules about privacy that you won't, you won't be able to, uh, to overcome. But, but if, we, if people are volunteering um, to um, reveal this information, there's no reason why you won't make use of it. Absolutely. One of the things that, that, that sort of uh, came to my mind while you were describing, you know, emotions as, as essentially rational things, um, I remember the, the school of psychotherapy, constructivism, and generally social constructivism that, that states, Kelly, who is their founder, pretty much states that he describes emotions as uh, regulatory mechanisms. And I right. think it goes very much in line with what you with, with what you are saying. Emotions on the surface might seem as irrational or, or at times brash, but the thing is that they always describe some some inner motivation that is neither has some kind of an obstacle in front of it or is trying to channel through some kind of an obstacle. Mm-hmm. When we speak about negative emotions, for example, so I think mm-hmm. that in, in this sense, what, what you are saying concerning uh, uh, jurors being able to to interact and sort of learn more, not just about the case, but also about each other, I think it's it's something that is a core element of 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 these institutions that needs to be also. Uh, sort of related to, because right. if, we take, if we take a look at you know the, just making decisions without the without the the presence of these emotions, we lose a key element in 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 human decision making. And on on that note, uh, one of the, the the questions, sort of a broad question that that I wanted to ask to you in particular was, how can we learn to make better decisions? Aha, uh-huh. that's a that's a big question. Sense. The yes. million-dollar question. Um, <laughs> so um, I think the most is, the most important the most important aspect in in making better decision is experience. When I talk mm-hmm. about experience, is just is not just being involved in many situations where you have to make decision. Is storing in your brain. The entire process of decision making, namely studying from decision, not just experiencing it passively, okay, but uh, being aware of the fact that you decided in favor of A against B because of certain um, considerations, whether it's a logical consideration or emotional reactions or whatever. Being aware, being, uh, uh, it goes back to consciousness and awareness, right? Uh, that we as human beings are the only creature that is, is, is capable of doing, okay? We are capable of, of looking, uh, of doing introspection, looking inside ourselves and asking ourselves, why have we done this thing this way, Okay. And uh, but this is this is the main the main uh, role the main role of um, of experience. Now there is one there is one trait human trait that help us a lot 
in doing it, but it's it's by itself is not sufficient. And I'm I'm referring to regret. Okay, mm. regret mm. is is precisely this type of this this mechanism that force us to remember mistakes. Right? Mm. Okay. Uh, it's it's an emotion. We feel regret. I mean, we feel something. Ah, you know, it's a, the down to a physical reaction when we, you know yeah. we, we made a mistake or or we failed in the in an exam where because we didn't study hard. Uh, yeah. We feel bad about these things, and the reason why why nature designed us to feel bad about these things is that emotions are stored in memory much better than facts, right? Mm-hmm. So next time, you know, if we hadn't regretted failing an exam, next time that we face a similar situation without regret, we are unlikely to remember. We are, we are, we are very likely to make the same mistake again. Okay? Indeed. Now, I said it's important uh, to, to let regret operate, but, it, uh, but it's not enough, Okay. It's mm-hmm. it's it's the starting point, okay? So when we make a mistake and feel regret, uh, it's not enough to say, okay, we regret because we made a mistake, but it's an opportunity to ask ourselves to go deeper into this decision and ask, okay, uh, how could have we made it differently, okay? Mm-hmm. And in particular, do we do we feel regret for good reason? Maybe we mm-hmm. we feel regret. Without a good reason, maybe we didn't have a, cho- a better choice, and we mm. still feel regret, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this type of analysis, which involves really, really very deep interactions between emotions and reasoning, right? Mm. Um, it's, it's really goes into the interface between emotion and rationality, and it's the, this, this type of... of Reasoning is 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 mostly done in the prefrontal cortex, where 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 most of the interaction between rationality and emotion takes place. But but this type of interaction between emotions and rationality is is really the crucial aspect in making in you in utilizing experience, right? Mm. In 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 allowing our experience to be optimally utilized for the purpose of making tomorrow's decision better. Right. It, it reminds me a bit to Socrates, you know, and he used to say, know thyself. So um, exactly. this seems to be the way to make better decisions, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Indeed. Indeed. So, yeah, um, uh, this uh, have, I would say like for like hours, but uh, this is taking a lot of your time. I have just one last question. Yes. Um, so besides your book, which I personally recommend, uh, what other you. reading material you can recommend to people who want to know more about game theory, people who are just starting in this field? Um, I would very much um, recommend. There is a nice book called Thinking Strategically. By Dixit and Ailboff, which is um, um, a non-technical book for game theory, right? It just um, uh, brings uh, together um, a variety of um, 
environments in which game theory is being applied without us being even conscious about it. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I would, um, for those people who are interested in the topic, so it's not really pure game theory, but I do a lot of, uh, of game theory reasoning in my course. It's still going on. I started with the permission of uh, both Lancaster universities, the Hebrew university where I'm teaching, um, is to offer an online course in behavioral economics uh, um, that uh, started um, um, last week and uh, is still going on uh, with still about um, nine lectures uh, forthcoming. Okay, and it's open mm -hmm. to the public and it's free. Okay, mm -hmm. and um, I would uh, love to see um, uh, people who uh, uh, hear this podcast to join us. It's, uh, assuming it's it's coming out um, early enough. Excellent. Uh, I will I will take that course also, Eyal. So that sounds like a really good You're idea. Um, and this is all for for today. Yeah, Our already two hundred people registered for it. <laughs> That's that's a lot, and in, in one week. Uh, well, Eyal, uh, thank you very much for for your time. Uh, it was a pleasure thank having you. you. It was a pleasure.